All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Rebooting Education in the Post-Pandemic Era webinar series sponsored by Hoover's Education Success Initiative at Stanford University. This webinar series is an outgrowth of a set of essays about the challenges and opportunities for improving public education coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. That set of essays, How to Improve Our Schools in the Post-Pandemic Era, is available on the HESI homepages of the Hoover Institution website, hoover.org. The six-part series has run weekly at this time and will again through next week, October 20th. Today's topic is who needs to be in the room where it happens to improve US K through 12 schools. I'm Mackie Raymond, and I'm the Program Director for Education at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, I'm also the Director of the Center for Research on Education Outcomes, known as CREDO, here at Stanford. And we study whether efforts to improve US K through 12 public education are working. Uh, I'm delighted to be moderating our session today, and I'm joined by three really strong panelists, all of whom serve on the Hoover Education Success Initiative Practitioner Council. They are a vital part of our efforts here at Hoover to expand the use of evidence-based research in building effective US K through 12 education policy. Before I introduce them today, I'd like to just say a word about the topic that we're talking about today. We have at no point ever in the history of US public education had more difficult and contentious conditions under which efforts to improve outcomes for students are being attempted. And the panelists here today come with rich experience, knowledge and skills in understanding how to build strong coalitions for successful public initiatives in K-12 education. This is not something they teach in schools. This is stuff you learn hand over hand, foothold over foothold. And I'm hoping today that we will hear about the personal journeys as well as the successes of building coalitions from the three panelists I'm now going to introduce to you. First off, Margie Bendevin, the Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education in the state of Missouri. She was appointed commissioner for, for education in 2014 and has served continuously throughout that time. For those of you who don't know, that is, that is a huge length of tenure for a state education chief. And that just is testament to what a great job she's been doing for Missouri. She has over 30 years experience as an educator and an administrator, but also as a builder of really effective partnerships for education. Can't wait to hear what she has to say. Second, Darrell Bradford is with us today and he's the president of 50CAN, which is the 50 state campaign for achievement now. He's also the executive director of its New York branch, New York CAN. And in his role, he trains and recruits local leaders and develops uh, executive directors of these state organizations. He also runs an advocacy fellows program and uh, trains citizen advocates. So he is also very knowledgeable about what it takes to build the necessary momentum for change. Thanks for being here, Daryl. And last, but certainly not least, we have Christina Laster, who serves as the Director of Policy and Legislation for the National Parents Union. Previously, she worked in San Diego Unified School District in their early childhood and special education program. She formerly served as the statewide community organizer for the California Policy Center, and she was a local NAACP education chair. So thank you, Christina, for joining us today. The format of the session goes like this. We're gonna spend about 35 minutes talking amongst ourselves uh, about 
who needs to be in the room. Uh, and then we're gonna open it up to questions from the audience. If you would like to pose a question, please use the question format in Zoom. Uh, we have people standing by who are going to review the questions for clarity and redundancy and uh, try to produce a series of Q&A that is interesting and enlivening and in fact reflects the, the views of the audience as well. So thank you in advance for participating at that time. So Darrell, I would like to start with you. Could you share with the audience one of your pivotal experiences getting a program or a policy for improving K-12 education uh, adopted? Tell us about the stakeholders that were involved. Did they turn out to be the right people? Were there people that were left out that should have been involved? And what was the experience like for you personally? So uh, thank you, Dr. Raymond, for inviting me. Uh, uh, I'm glad that nobody else has anything to say because it'll take like 35 <laughs> minutes to answer that question. And, and plus, I feel like the, the Q&A, like if your question doesn't get asked, it just wasn't a good enough question. Like the moderator is, is, is really on it today. Um, but no, it's, it's delightful to be here. I feel like, um, so, so two kind of quick stories, I think, about um, two pieces of legislation that were moving in New Jersey at the same time. Um, and I'd, like I sort of had the good fortune of working on, on both of them. So one was uh, like a tax credit scholarship program for kids going, to, for low-income kids, in some of the, you know, sort of richest, but like lowest reforming school districts at the time, you know, in the country really. Um, and, uh, and that was like a thing I'd worked on for a, a really long time. And um, it died on like the, the two inch line and it, it out of its death was born another piece of legislation called the Urban Hope Act, which introduced this sort of quasi charter school in Camden. Right, of which there are several, and they're and they're they're very 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 good schools. Um, the coalition was unusual because it was uh, it was uniquely bipartisan. So we had like lots of sort of like the constituency was was with us. So like moms and dads of color for the most part uh, living in places like Newark, Camden, Patterson, Jersey City, you know, all, all these other places. Um, sort of paired off with like choice supportive Republicans and like rim Democrats. So like blue dog Democrats who had a sense that like they were paying for very expensive schools that kids were going to like via, you know, via high property taxes and were against that and wanted to see sort of like something different um, actualized. And in the end, the, the failure to get that over the finish line meant that this like a, a power broker in the New Jersey Democratic Party wanted the thing for Camden and that's how the thing for Camden got done. So uh, so in this one instance, I guess you see like this unusual coalition, it's like tripartisan coalition. And in the end, you just get demonstrated that like legislative leadership or like party leadership matters a great deal because that guy wanted it and it got done. On the other side, just sort of much more quickly, I, uh, I worked on um, uh, re uh, reforming tenure in, in New Jersey. And at the time we had the oldest tenure law in, in, in the country. So I'm, I'm out here on my, win my, win my horse with my lance doing my best Don Quixote. Quixote. And, um, and I worked for like the richest person in the state at the time. Um, and we didn't have much of a coalition, but he had about like 10 billion coalitions and each of them had, you know, sort of like George Washington on the front of them. And so, so we were able to get something done with a different sort of power, like very small coalition, a lot of money, a lot of political money, a lot of advertising money, very at 50 camp, what we call like elite negotiation. You know, like the governor wanted something, the commissioner wanted something, a few legislative leaders wanted something. And we largely got, got, uh, uh, got something that uh, done that way. And that policy still sticks, although it has been sort of reduced over time. That's a great story. Margie, can I turn to you and have you answer the same question? Sure, and I agree. I, I think we could probably use the, the entire session to talk about these things because it is uh, such a time of learning when you're going through these things. But for me, I, I would probably go back uh, probably about seven years now when we passed our statewide accountability system, which was 
you know, obviously accountability has evolved significantly even since that time. But originally when we launched that program, um, we got significant pushback, moved very, very quickly, got significant pushback and had to restart. And so I think um, what we're talking about today, um, this experience will inform quite a bit about what I'll be sharing later. Um, so what we did on the restart to really gather the coalition was to, and when you're talking about state accountability systems and what makes a great school, a lot of times you start getting into tech, technical numbers and that sort of thing. And um, we needed the technical experts to help us with that. But what we really cared about was um, what do we value as a state? And so we did we did statewide meetings, statewide engagement meetings going around and asking um, various stakeholders to start with those very solid value systems, developed our policy goals, and then we're able to come back to those over and over again. And so um, learned quite a bit about uh, how people operate for the state of Missouri. We do have um, today some of what we're here on the political side. At that time, it was much more about urban rural needs Sometimes they were similar, sometimes they were different. We had school districts that were 26 students, school districts that were 26,000 students. And so how do we make something work to improve opportunities for every single child? Because that was the, the primary policy goal that we needed to come back to was um, really establishing the state expectations um, for every child in the state to have a quality education and to move forward. And so if you're doing that, how does this play out in one of our smallest rural districts? How does this play out in the urban districts? And then who needs to be at the table to help inform that, uh, that policy? Um, so I think we did a, that, that was a great start for us in helping build. Um, it was not just educators. It was parents. It was students. Um, I think we fell a little bit short on the business leader side. That is one area where um, you'll hear me talk about probably later today that importance of getting um, business behind what we're doing and understanding. Um, but the parents, the teachers, the students, the, um, the school leaders were all very, very influential in the direction that was set. Thank you. And I particularly like the broad base of those stakeholder groups because that's not always the numbers that you see. So interested to hear a little bit more as we go on today. Christina, can we hear from you as well? Yes. So I want to acknowledge that, you know, parents in the community recognized in policy and decision making, they were listed as stakeholders, but weren't treated as such. And so early on as an organization, um, we really wanted to bring the parent voice to the forefront in a real way that impacts decision-making processes and on every level. And so we look at how to bridge the gap between that community organizing and the law and the legislatures. And do parents really dynamically understand what is taking place or are they just in the room being talked to at or about, right? Um, so we were able to successfully um, engage with the current administration on making sure that parent stakeholder groups are present when decisions are being made about education regarding funding, regarding uh, what was happening with the pandemic, whatever that may be. One specific um, example that I do have with regards to bridging that gap between organizing the law and um, lawmakers and parents um, as key stakeholders to their children's educations was when the uh, top-down decision and appointment was made for Cynthia Martin from San Diego Unified School District. I understood dynamically the parents' experiences were not making it um, to Congress um, and that Congress needed to hear from the parents that actually were under her leadership and knew dynamically the experiences that their children were having in schools prior to them making the ultimate decision to make her deputy secretary of education. So um, we spearheaded a, a campaign around um, having the parents' voices come to the forefront really acknowledging and respecting that their experiences were authentic, they weren't making it up. Um, and then really just in national coalition with other community organizers and other organizations, being able to have meetings with the HELPS community, be, uh, committee, being able to have those legislative advocacy types of sessions where parents were um, 
in them and able to say, you know, I recognize that you're an elected official. Some of us, um, you know, we're talking to elected officials that were our congressional reps too. Um, and we're saying that this is what we desire, right? Um, those top-down decisions can't be made around our children's educations without us in the room. And so we'd like for you guys to really consider what we're saying. I think that um, although she was appointed, you know, we were able to bring parents from the trenches and the community straight to the White House to say, look, here are the parents. Let's have a real serious discussion before any decisions are made that are going to impact the entire nation. Thank you. Well, that that sounds like it was um, uh, an extremely influential exercise that you took your parents through and uh, hopefully was beneficial for all parties concerned. My next question is actually for all of you, um, as you consider the national landscape, what would you say, which stakeholder groups would you say have had the most influence in driving change? And I would really like to limit this to the positive change uh, for, for school improvement, not necessarily a continuation of the status quo. And I'd like to know whether you think of earlier successes for some stakeholder groups means that they are more or less willing to form coalitions with other new emerging stakeholders. So the question is really who is, Who's, who's been the big dogs up till now? And what does it mean for building broader based coalitions now? That's the question. So um, Margie, could we start with you this time? Sure. And, you know, I don't think I'll name specific groups um, in this particular forum, but I, I will talk about what I see as, as those groups who came together to drive the most positive change in our state. And I think it is those groups who are specifically representing uh, students. And so when we talk about um, uh, change that needs to occur and we are thinking about how every policy decision that we make will impact the success of our children, and we talk about policies that have clearly identified making sure we're paying attention and breaking out the data by various demographics, I think that is where we have become very, very cognizant of what we're doing and the impact and looking at um, how that impacts these various student groups. And that doesn't happen without those groups coming together and saying, this is what we need for these children. So I think I, I will say um, that part and let me re repeat the next part because that is a little bit different than. Well, so the question is then, um, do you see as we are moving forward that there needs to be a broadening of the stakeholder coalition that you just described in order to take on future issues and policies? So, yes, I think one of the, if they can come together to think outside of just that one group, because that's, that's what we really want to focus in on. If you hear from one voice, people do tend to come back and say, well, um, they're only advocating for their child or for their program or for their this. What, what we're really looking at is bigger picture, broader buy-in. And you get that by saying, this is good for school improvement. This is good for kids. This is good for the state to move forward because of these um, impact. And when you start advocating for each other, I think that's really important. The one thing I will say about some of the coalitions who come together is, is um, also the, uh, the messaging that they can, they can work together on. And if they all start talking the same talk, it just makes so much sense to everyone when they're out um, hearing from different groups about the same step that needs to be moving forward. And that comes through um, various groups working together uh, on, on an organized front. Well, I particularly like your idea about aligned communication because uh, that can be a frequent tripper upper uh, of, of actually moving forward. Christina, what about you? So one thing I uh, know that uh, during the pandemic, parents really recognized right away was that they were not considered the special interest group that was to be part of the decision-making processes and part of the people that were heard. Um, and even though we have been in coalition with organizations on the ground, uh, really trying to establish our voices in a profound way, there was still that external um, thing that was taking place that, that, that kept on pushing back. 
right? And so it, it's very clear now to um, parents all across the nation, and, and, uh, especially throughout the state, state as I saw some um, school uh, recall, board recall uh, rallies happening, that we need to be listened to. We're not considered special interests, but our children are only are our special interests. And we have to be the ones to be a part of those decision-making processes. Um, there has been a lot of pushback. Um, and so, you know, especially with regards to the teachers union and you, and it makes parents try to think of why, right? Why are there these, uh, parallel lanes that seem diametrically opposed, right? We would honestly um, have considered and trusted in the beginning that teachers unions would have our students' interests at hand, but we learned that they do not. And so as parents begin to really understand that um, they were not a part of the overall decision-making processes and that their voices would be considered, but that the union had a special seat, I noticed that a coalition began to be stronger throughout parent groups, throughout organizations, throughout even civil rights organizations saying, look, this is not fair. This is not um, the way that people should be treated. Um, and we should be considered the key stakeholders with regards to any processes or anything that takes place regarding our children's educations. So Darrell, you have, you have two different seats. And so I don't know how you want to answer this question. Do you want to answer this question as the head of a state-specific action group? Or do you want to take a, a larger, more broad-based view across all of the 50 states when you answer? I know you're trying to throw me a bone given the uh, given the rolling car crash that New York City has been. I'm doing what I can for you, but uh, I don't know. I, appreciate I was going to try to keep it positive too. So, uh, so, so I, I do want to say that on, on the positive side, I do think, uh, and not just to big up a fellow practitioner, a member of the Practitioner Council, that the uh, National Parents Union sort of rolling polling of parent sentiment has been um, has been incredibly uh, important. Um, like we haven't seen something that was so sort of consistent and targeted over such a long period of time. And I think that's, that was um, extremely helpful to sort of frame, framing the debate around like what was going on and who was getting what and who wasn't getting what. Um, and, I, and on the opposite side of that, I'll just, I'll, I'll throw this barb and then I have like an actual point to make. You know, look, I wish I could write an email and get the CDC to change COVID guidance. <laughs> or show up on Sunday morning talk and say 90% of people are vaccinated and not have to demonstrate anything about it and have people be like, oh yeah, I guess 90% of people are vaccinated. Like one of the things that, that was clear was that like there's a constituency of people who have power bestowed upon them by leading our education institutions. And then there are people who have varying degrees of power who have to use those institutions and they're treated differently in the media. So I, I would throw that out there. Um, the, the one, at least, at least they are in, in New York City, I, I, I will give, uh, give the great state of Missouri a pass. Um, but the, uh, the, the one other thing I would say, what has been missing and I think is sort of essential in, in the media landscape about COVID in particular is that um, as much as we're fighting over even getting people to acknowledge the fact that the effects of like now 20 months or more of disrupted learning are real, like you got to fight with people or whether or not you can call it learning loss or not, like that's a thing. Um, there are very few people who are sort of asserting a positive vision for what we could be doing given the the cracks or of the you know that we see in our institutions or the disruptions of the last one because it hasn't it's been hugely bad in many places but it hasn't all been bad and there are like many green shoots and families who found something that they did not have before or who came back to something that they had before and love it more and there there isn't a lot of talk about trying to trying to get there i think because you know if you're the press like Nobody writes a story about a house that's not on fire, you know, so, so everybody is looking for two people who are tilting at one another because that 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 is a, a thing that draws readership. Well, thank you. Let me just take a moment and in, encourage the audience uh, as you are listening to this fascinating set of, of conversation. Please, if you have questions, add them to the Q&A. We'll be getting to you in another 10 minutes or so. 
and we'd like to make sure that we give you the opportunity to participate in today's conversation. Uh, so, so getting back to uh, our, our chat right now, um, one of the things that the work that the Practitioner Council and HESI did together in this set of essays that we created for the, uh, the anthology about what to do coming out of COVID, one of the things that really became clear to me is that it's possible for very diverse points of view to come together and be respectful and civil in their exchange. That's step one in a process of building a joint solution that will satisfy people. And so the, the question that I wanna ask here coming out of COVID is what, what do you see as the necessary conditions for let's, let's just stipulate that we're gonna start with civil and respectful conversation, which I know is a big step in a lot of places right now, but let's start there. What other things have to happen in order for us to come to a coalition that agrees not only that kids are important and ought to be the focus and the, the proving point of policy decisions, but also what specific solutions ought to be pursued. And so, uh, Commissioner, I'd love to start with you because you're living this every day. We are living this every day. And what I will say is, um, and, and I don't mean to be negative on this one because we are staying, uh, but but your first step that you've put it, that first condition is huge. No, I mean, I get it. we absolutely have to come together and be able to talk, even if we disagree. And so for me, it's always that first step of seek to understand where are the, where are the various positions coming from? Because what we're seeing in, I mean, almost every decision that I have made or every decision it feels like we make or schools make, it is about a 50-50 split right now. I mean, 50% fully support it and 50% do not. And that is very unusual for me in my experience. You, I used to play the 80-20 game. You know, you usually had about 10% that agreed, 10% who didn't at all, and then 80 were kind of in the middle. It is, it is a much different place right now um, coming out of COVID. And so the first thing is to get your first condition right. And that takes trust. It takes understanding and it takes really seeking to, to understand that people really do. Um, I think they all want the same thing and they believe deeply about uh, educating our children and taking care of our children. They just have very different viewpoints on how to keep them safe and how to do that. So trying to acknowledge that as the first step. Then, then what you do from there is going back a little bit to what uh, was discussed earlier is acknowledgement of where the issues are. Uh, we, we have seen kids in very different places. And so trying to get a real sense of understanding, we just released our test results a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was you know, people found that fascinating in some regards, others asked why we would do such a thing, but to us getting some of those data points and understanding, for example, who had access uh, to the, to the uh, digital resources that were necessary. That was the digital divide is tremendous in our state right now. We're working to correct that. So uh, what matters in an education today? That looks a little bit different than it might have pre-COVID. We've really got a sense of, of um, what does it mean to move forward into this world that we're entering today? So getting a sense of what it is that our kids do need to know and be able to do to be successful in this environment, not losing sight of the fact that they gained a tremendous amount of 21st century skills that they would have never gained in another environment, understanding that some kids thrived in this environment and some kids haven't even had a school experience or any kind of structure for all, almost two years. We're in very different places. So acknowledging that, um, setting a goal and understanding of what it is that we wanna see for our children and really understanding that in order to get there, we have to get to the first step that you were talking about, which is working together and seeking to understand one another. Let me offer Christina or Darrell an opportunity to jump in. So, you know, a lot of talk happens about inputs, but I know that what parents um, want is a high quality education for their children as an outcome. Right. And so when we look at uh, pre pandemic and right now, like just the fear of regression, um, looking at that data, those conversations really should be outcomes focused and outcomes based. And then having that bold 
an audacious discussion to um, the legislatures to say, listen, parents need to have access to high quality educational options, right? Parents do not want their children trapped in a failing school and then having to worry about what's going to happen with their upward mobility, what's going to happen with those lifelong outcomes. And so there really, really does need to be a outcomes-based discussion. How do we replicate working models, which is a bold discussion, right? Um, and, and really around the data and what has happened uh, over more than just the pandemic time, right? Before the pandemic. And how do we really start to look at shifting a system that has been inflexible, pretty rigid, um, and pivot to a model that's gonna work? Because we know that there are multiple layers of, of issues, but what parents are seeking is a high quality education for their children that produces outcomes. And not just having discussions around the fiscal impact right? Um, we recognize that our children are not going to be able to uh, solve fiscal insolvency. So how do we uh, allow them the freedom to be able to go to the school that is really going to support their modality of learning, really going to produce the outcomes that we know that they need, um, and not leave children in a state of numeracy or illiteracy? So uh, Dr. Raymond, um, this is a very good question. I feel like, uh, I feel like the Commissioner touched on it earlier. You know, 50 can is a place of bipartisanship. We are like half in red states, half in blue states. And I was telling somebody the other day, it is a joy for me to go to the Aspen Institute and the American Enterprise Institute and, and, and not burst into flames. Um, and so I, I highlight that to say that I, I don't think you can solve or begin to solve any of the problems that we're dealing with right now, if you can't take the temperature down enough to talk about what you might what you might agree on, right? So, so I'm I, I'm just saying as a tactic, turn the heat down. You you had you, you everybody watching this thing has the personal choice to decide to turn the heat down and see what happens. So I, I just want to. I want to reflect that as a necessary pre. I want to offer that as a necessary precondition to to change. The other thing I would just say is that, um, and and this is going to sound funny. You know, diversity is our strength, and I think over the last year and a half, a whole bunch of people who who were not normally engaged in the education question have come off of the bench and decided to be a part of trying to answer it. Right, and they are people in schools but they're also people out of schools. They're community groups, they're retired teachers, they're tutors, they're churches, it's business, it's, it's industry, it's apprenticeship. There are all these other people who have made the landscape of education diverse and everywhere in a way that it sort of was not before. And we can't lose that. Like, like we, we should not lose that. And, and I won't try to like, uh, like drop it into a narrow policy, you know, framework. But but the idea that learning happens everywhere, which is something that people have been telling us forever, should be sort of fundamental to how we we move forward. And I think if, if we do that, right, you get the same sort of start with turning the temperature down that you get from the political side of it, right? Which is like we need diverse people to talk about who we want to be as a nation. We need diverse actors to talk about how we educate our kids so that they can live out that promise, like safely and without blowing up, blowing us up. We can do both of those things together. I like that a lot. Um, I, I'm going to deviate from my role as a moderator, just to say that one of the things that I think the pandemic has, has brought forward is not just the broadening of where students are in their schooling, and a much, much wider array of places of readiness in our students. But you, and so that has some serious implications for how you organize the delivery of curriculum and instruction. Um, and good luck, Margie, doing that. Um, but also you've got this incredible new um, uh, parade of other interests coming to the table. The good news about that is that there are so many more people who understand how completely foundational education is to the fabric of our society 
not only individually for the kids and their outcomes, but how those individual outcomes have the ripple effect through local communities and local organizations up through including to our nation. And recognizing that every single one of those new stakeholders has their own set of interests in making sure that the education system delivers there has been really exciting. It's very much more complicated because you have people without histories, right? They don't know, they don't know all the puts and the shoves and the takes that have happened over the last 10, 15, 20 years. So they don't really understand the, the sort of subtleties of the maneuvering that goes on. But there's, there's real good power there that I think can be leveraged to, uh, to, to really bring a, a different kind of energy to the conversation. But definitely agree with you all that we have to be able to do this um, in a way that is outcomes, student welfare, civilly focused and, and move together as a group. All right, uh, we are thinking about some questions. Uh, if you guys are ready for that. Are you ready for questions? All right, here we go. Um, historically, the education system has consistently failed families from low-income backgrounds. What are the best examples we are seeing now of genuine engagement with families that have been left behind in earlier times? Uh, Christina, I'm going to start with you because I think you have uh, some recent experience with this. Yes. And so, you know, those engagements that are most successful are when we have that recognition around the failure that has taken place. Right. Um, and according to the data and where we allow um, parents to be able to look across school models and look at the data and compare it and find a school that is more suitable for their child. Right. And so when you have that ability, and then you can look at a, a state where they're also replicating those working models and parents have access to them, that's where you find um, success rates change. Um, when you have um, parents who are, you know, forming formal advisory committees um, and councils to the district schools that their children attend, and they can actually see their um, input reflected in the decision-making processes. Then you have a recipe for success. Then you have a recipe for engagement where you will have the parents in the community as stakeholders want to continue to engage because they know that they're being taken serious and they know that their uh, voice and their input is impacting change. At what rate of change um, that that happens it is according, it varies, right? Um, and it varies according to the level of collaboration and, and the desire for meaningful progress. And so those are the, um, the ways in which I believe engagement has the ability to utilize what works and then can continue to move forward through various means through district uh, advisory councils and committees that parents have a decision-making seat at. Thank you. Margie, let me turn to you because obviously Missouri has been a state where you've had both success and less than success in addressing high, high quality schools in, in neighborhoods and communities that have been long underserved. So what's your take on this? Well. You know, I think I'll go back to the original question that was asked because I, I did read the whole question and I saw the last part of the sentence when it's and talking about do we care and I hear that sometimes in Jefferson City we're in a, the the more remote areas and do we care about these um, schools that are really struggling and we deeply deeply care about the success of those children and yet trying to get into those communities to get the authentic engagement. I was just on a phone call yesterday, just yesterday. Um, with a parent in one of our districts that's struggling, and he was president of the PTO. And I said, tell me, what are the authentic strategies? Because it is part of the secret sauce, getting the parents, getting the pastors, getting the communities to rally together to say, we're going to set these high expectations for our children. And we're going to make sure that, that we're all working together um, to hold high expectations for our children so that they can move on um, for success. Right now, I will tell you, some of what we're working on is making sure 
kids come back to school. Some of these children literally have to get back into the mindset of, of going to school every day. This is, uh, it, it sounds simple, but if you think about it, there are some challenges there. And so how do we get um, auth- uh, authentically get parents involved, not just showing them results, not just, you know, as, as uh, Christina said earlier, talking at them, but genuinely, how do we work as partners Uh, Missouri was very proud of beginning with uh, parents um, as teachers and really coming together to say, this is, these are our expectations at school. These are our expectations at home. This is what we want for educational outcomes for our children. And here's how we'll, how we will get there. So, um, so much of it is the relationship key that we know. um, And so much of it is um, being able to, you know, I'm going to go back to this all the time because it's one of our biggest things. The, the teacher um, shortage right now that we're experiencing is very, very real. And it seems to impact some of our um, struggling districts the most. How do we make sure we're able to uh, retain the best teachers in some of these greatest needed areas? And um, that's a policy that I think we can work on. And so parents, the teachers, high quality curriculum and instructional materials and high expectations for every child. I would I would just say I don't want to belabor it, and I, I could never run a, a a state school system, so I I, I commend you for taking that punishment on. Um, <laughs> but the I do think we're sort of coming up against two questions here, and they live in this thing about like why 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 can't we organize a system that works well for the most put upon kids? The first one is just um, a challenge of of empire almost, and when I say empire, I mean di- distance and location. It is just incredibly difficult to manage the education of like 70 million kids centrally, mm-hmm. even if you break it up by 50, right? Even if you break it up by 14,000, it's just incredibly difficult to do. Right? And so I think one of the things we are doing is coming up just uh, against a challenge of, of distance and scale. And the other one is, is of size, right? So, uh, uh, you know, I don't know a lot of school districts above 10,000 kids where everything's going well for everybody, right? Um, and so the, the, I do think that the part of the problem is that it is very difficult the way we have education, public education arranged to be successful in the granular when, when, the, when circumstances are not average, if that makes any sense. Um, and so like the one school that is far flung, right? Or that is close, but where all the kids are high needs is is not the school that a a system that manages to the average is well positioned to do something about. And I think that's why we have to, you know, we bring other things off the table. You bring, you know, you have charter schools in the toolbox, you have independent schools, you have tutors, you, you have all these other kinds of governance that are meant to help you solve that problem that is particularly hard for a, a state agency just, just to solve. So I, I like the idea that uh, the solution set has to be diversified in order to assure that all students get the opportunity that they need. Um, it does sort of beg the question about whether individual personalized learning plans have a viable strategy in our landscape today. And so I'm going to deviate from the questions from the audience to circle back to this group and ask them if they have a view about that, not just from the theoretical perspective, but from the practical perspective of making it work for kids. So, uh, Christina, what do you think? I do believe that individual educational uh, plans work best with kids' modalities of learning, right? Really, the challenge is, is what is the capacity of the system to be able to, to do that? to offer each and every child individualized learning experience. Um, And so there has to be a look at the way that children are learning, what types of environments are most suitable for them, um, you know, and offer those environments, whether it be personalized learning, whether it be, I see some um, questions in the chat about homeschool, right? Um, Or whether that be you know, another type of hybrid model, right? But having all of those things um, should be able to produce some better outcomes than just having one thing, right? Just having that uniform, basic, 
type of um, education that looks at all children in the same way and perhaps some special programs within that may be accessible to some, but not all, right? And so we need to really look at the way that we offer various learning environments for various uh, styles of learning and having that plan is going to be able to determine how to best educate that child. What is it that they need, right? Then if you have a progress reporting system around that, you can see where the children are and what is it that they need to to pursue further progress. Um, And so I think that that is a good way to even just start to assess the needs around the, the modalities of learning of the students that enter into the educational environment. But we do have to really look at the challenge of the capacity of the current education system to be able to produce that. I would like to, I know the the commissioner does not have to deal with these dreamy talk things. This is dreamland. She's very focused on the practical. So I, I want to acknowledge we're going to dreamland. Um, but, you know, uh, on the one side, I, I just want to say that, like, again, this diversity thing, I think, is really important because one of the ways that that districts, right, or state education agencies deal with individualization is through selectivity. So, like, magnets, G&T, these other, these other kinds of things, like, I'm, I'm supportive of those things, right, because that is how that type of governance does specialization. Um, but the, the other thing I would just say is, like, again, fantasy land. So this suit... I haven't worn it forever. I'm happy I can still fit it because I've been inside for like a long time, right? And it's it's a custom suit and it wasn't that expensive and I got it online, right? And so like I went to a place and they measured me and then and I picked some stuff and they sent it to me, right? And the only reason why that is relevant, I tr- and trust me, it is relevant because back in the day, there's no way I ever would have been able to, to afford a suit made just for me. Right. And over time, enough people like tried it, did things. Uh, uh, obviously, you get computers and a whole bunch of other things involved. And eventually it's not cheap, but it's much less expensive and available to more people. And I, I think the question of of personalization at scale is a similar question. Right. Right now, it is incredibly bespoke and individualized. And so if you're rich, you can get it, right? Or if you're incredibly industrious, you can get it. But we haven't crossed the threshold of relatively inexpensive and widely available. And I think we can do that. We just have to decide we want to finance such a thing, right? Get a universe of early adopters to help us trial it, right? Roll out something to the world so more people can trial it, and then we see what happens. So and I, I think there are plenty of positive examples about how we can get to something that is both widespread and individualized. Yeah, that's great. And I, I will I will say you hit on it. It is it is a dream, but I, I think it's possible. It's just, it's just the operational. You both talked about that. Operationalizing these things is a challenge. Um, once the pandemic hit, we immediately launched a task force on competency-based learning because we knew kids would come back in very different places and talked about what that could look like. And we're still very engaged in those conversations, but it will probably have to start with pilot schools to do that. Um, it, to do that statewide out the gate, we have found um, might be a bit of a challenge, but it just really makes sense. Um, we talk about why kids love gaming so much because they know where they need to be to get to the next level and they're happy to go there. And if you outline the plan for them and you help them be the directors of their own learning and see what they need to do to get there, it just makes sense. So we're focusing on that. We're focusing on a lot of the uh, apprenticeships and hands-on giving, giving kids really project-based learning, all those things that you talk about, but but pulling them into one house. We, we kind of joked that um, we, we celebrated our bicentennial this year. And so um, people were reflecting on the one-room schoolhouse. And I said, yeah, maybe we could do the one-room schoolhouse and then bring it back to the one-room schoolhouse. Because it's real possible that our kids, you know, our teachers are equipped now to learn to find where, t- where students are and help them get to the next level. But some of it's structural. So that that is possible. Structural is possible. It just takes a while to do it. Well, what I like about what I'm hearing in all of these answers is that it starts from the commitment that we have to. And rather than acknowledging the constraints that we face now and making that the answer, we're saying the the constraints are the things that we have have to address in order to recognize 
this value of making sure that every single student's needs are identified and addressed and met and they are brought forward so that they can have opportunity. That is a very different shift. I have to say over the last four years, this has been a huge shift. Um, and while I, I think the pandemic really put that on steroids, I did actually see some of that conversation starting before the pandemic. It, it took on an additional level of incredible urgency in the last 18 to 22 months, but, but still I think there's, there's a long road ahead of us. Um, I, I would love to return to one of these questions that relates to it. Um, I wanted to know uh, if you thought that the available data that we have about how students are doing is going to be sufficient for us to have the conversations that you folks have just been having. And so, you know, I, I'm a data nerd and so I like the data, but I also recognize that there's not much that we can do with the data that we have, I think. But is it sufficient for the conversations we need to have right now? And if not, what additional data do you think we need to have on students and contexts in order to be productive in these conversations? Commissioner, can I start with you? Sure. Uh, you know, is it sufficient? I, I'm kind of like you. I'm, I like the data. And, and so I would say it's not quite sufficient. Um, and we've been very careful to talk about the data that we did release, that it is one data point and it should be treated as one data point. And although we had over 90% participation rate and we did require a standard administ administration of that, where we had we required students to be uh, that test to be taken in the classroom, um, which is a little bit different than I think some states may have done. Um, we still feel like it was, uh, you know, the, 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 the year was so disruptive that we can't say that there's anything standard about it. So what we did try to do with that <clears throat> is to attach um, various data collections, because as you know, you have to know what you want to know before you start collecting the data, or it's really hard to go back and get it. But we wanted to know what was the impact of the delivery mode. So we did try to find out the primary um, instructional mode for each child. We did try to talk about the availability of, of high-speed internet access, those sorts of things. And now we're going to be working with our growth model to be able to better quantify what that learning loss could potentially look like and how it impacted various populations. Is it sufficient? I still think it is not sufficient to know exactly where we are. Some of the things that we need to count on are um, some of the local assessments, some of our teachers, um, and, and I don't think we've talked about this as much yet, um, but the mental health needs that our children are dealing with are very, very real. So getting a sense and understanding of where our kids are um, and the culture and climates that are existing in our schools, I think are also helpful um, to know what we need to do to provide the right interventions to move forward. Either of the other two wanna to add to that? Well then I'm gonna add one last question before we wrap up. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of an abridging of some of the questions that we, we received. Um, we've talked about the fact that uh, there are people with power, uh, there are groups with power, and that the pandemic has broadened the number of folks who want to be at the table. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are welcomed to the table. Uh, and in the final analysis, decision makers basically get to weigh the input uh, that they receive from stakeholder groups on their own. Is there such a thing as accountability for decision makers? Have we thought about whether during this time where we're all wanting to see different responsiveness of decision makers, is there a way that we could think about uh, reflecting the degree to which decision makers actually are incorporating input from other stakeholder groups or whether they're just reverting to old models. Yeah, I, I think Mitch McConnell said, uh, we have term limits in the Senate, they're called elections, right? So, so, so I, I, just, I just wanna throw, some, throw, I throw that out there to say that I think the, the most important thing for people to realize, and this, this is said with respect to someone who is a, a, a sitting state co commissioner, um, is that, are, are you appointed? You're, are you appointed or elected? 
I'm hired by the State Board of Education. Oh, all right. So they, there you go. All right. Who, who, who are, okay. So they're appointed so, um, by the governor. And who are appointed. Okay. So, yeah. so the, the governor's the guy, right? So if you, if you don't like the commissioner and you don't like the people who appoint the commissioner, you got to fire the governor, right? Um, and I, I highlight that to say that same thing in New York, right? If you don't like what's going on, you got to fire the mayor, right? So the, it is incredibly important that people actually, it's like, Lots of people are just like, we got to get politics out of education. You can never do that. The education process the, is fundamentally political, right? So, so that, that is the, the first sort of Yoda, like you must unlearn what you have learned moment, right? And one of your instances where you focus, where you tell people that you want to be heard, and if they don't hear you, you can, you can punish them is in an election, right? So I, I just want to highlight that. You can also replace them through an election, right? Which, which is a, 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 another way to, um, to kind of do this. I, I would just say that like, if you don't want to be in the election business or the passing laws business or the raising money for campaigns business, you have to be in the exit business. Um, and and the, the thing, you know, I always thought this is why I'm like, uh, like I, I support, you know, this is why I'm a school choice supporter, right? Because in the end, it shouldn't be up to an individual to have to accrue all this political power to assert themselves, right? And, and sometimes the easiest way to assert yourself is to be like, I'm taking my jacks, I'm, ta I'm taking my ball, I'm, go I'm, going, I'm going someplace else. So, so I would uh, uh, urge people to, to think about those those levers, like one of them are, a lot of them are given to the political process. Some of them are you being a part of the political process and some of you just deciding to show people you're serious and, and leaving it all together as, as ways to make sure you are heard. They aren't the only ways to make sure you're heard, but they are some of the most, they are some of the loudest ways to make sure you are heard. So I'm gonna jump in here and, and quote a book that I loved when I was a student and the title was Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. And you're talking about essentially loyalty, amassing enough personal power from within the system that you can change it or exit. I think my question was actually going towards voice that there may in fact be a spotlight effect that can happen if you're continually monitoring uh, how people are behaving when they're making decisions. And so I, I don't see that we have a wide practice nationally or even in locations about monitoring what's happening and reflecting that back out to the larger community. I think that that may be in fact a frontier that, that some of the stakeholder groups that we've been talking about today who may not be holding power right now can exercise indirect influence without necessarily having to cho choose between staying in the system and exiting. So, I would, I would offer that. Um, let, I'm gonna give each of you one minute if you have anything you'd like to say as a wrap up and then I'm gonna close with that. Commissioner. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would possibly like to go back to that earlier comment because I would really like to see some of the politics getting out of education and I know that they are there and this might be a good time for me to clarify that I actually was out of this job for a year. So I didn't do that consecutively. There was a time when, uh, politics took pretty big heat here in Missouri and I was removed and then brought back on. And um, in, in the Missouri constitution, I am in a nonpartisan role and those board members are appointed as such. That being said, I think we, there has got to be accountability for the leaders who are in these chairs today. And there, every time, local control state, every time I meet with our superintendents, I not every time, but I, many times I just remind them that a decade from now, we're all going to be judged for the decisions that we made during this very pivotal time. And we have to sleep with that. And we have to get up and think about it. And as I said earlier, 50% of the people are going to agree with you and 50% are not. And so you really have to have your North Star identified, focused on, and always doing what's right for the kids and being able to defend why you're making the decisions that you're, made, that you're making. <laughs> but accountability is very important there. Okay, I think that's a walking handbook right there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Christina, last minute, last comment. Yes, so as a, a school board trustee, I am constantly um, encouraging parents to see themselves in those seats, right? And so if we were to look at the very, the most local control possible, why not 
the parents and the community members that care deeply about education, practice showing up for board meetings um, and holding accountability, but also look at those elections and find out if collectively you guys can also, if there's someone that's there that's not a, a good actor, um, sit in that seat yourself. So I definitely encourage that. Along with that, um, then you can move up the chain of command line to that legislative advocacy on the state level, and then perhaps nationally. And I do encourage that. We really need to be civically literate to be able to do this and share this information with our communities and other parents so that we dynamically understand what is involved with our children's education and how to improve that. Thank you. Darrell, last words? Yeah, I, I would just say, again, thank you very much for having me here today. It's delightful to be with such uh, fascinating and, thought, and thoughtful people, especially because I'm here alone the rest of the time. Um, the, the one thing I, I would just say, and like, I, I know I seem flip when I talk about these things, but I actually take them very seriously. I, I, you cannot underestimate, uh, to, to Commissioner Van Dieven's point, how, how serious this moment is. It's really bad. Okay, it's it's bad in ways that the bad that we talked about before looks great com compared to the bad that we have now. Um, if you missed a fourth grade reading window in the last like 18 months, it's really bad, right? If you dropped out of high school because mom got sick and you got a job and you didn't matriculate back, it's really bad. And so if somebody doesn't look like they're up to that challenge, you need to talk to them, right? Like we, we all need to be on the same page about the, for good reasons and bad reasons, the institutional failure of the last two years and what that means for every kid today that's in school that's supposed to lead us at some point in the future. It is really bad. It is really serious. And I would urge you all to take it that way. Thank you. I'm not sure that that's the best note on which to end. No, I had to. out of time. I had to. Before we, all, before we close though, I do wanna offer thanks to our panelists today. Uh, I thought this conversation was fantastic. So Margie, Christina and Darrell, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thanks also to the audience who were offering their questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them, uh, but uh, thank you for joining our webinar today. We're gonna post a recording in the next few days uh, so if you didn't get enough of this and you want to repeat, you're welcome to come and, and see that. It's also going to be a podcast, but also feel free to share that with your own networks uh, and, and uh, encourage you to have similar conversations with the folks in your world. Um, you'll find all of those recordings on the Hoover Education Success Initiative homepages on the hoover.org website. I hope you'll join us next week. Uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific next Wednesday, October 20th, for the topic, Has School Accountability Outlived Its Shelf Life? Until then, thank you and good afternoon. <laughs>